want to ask you, we, we, we were talking, I want to, 74 was for you the equivalent of a near-death experience. I mean, that race. Oh, I was on life support there, yeah. What, did it change you in any way? Or? Yeah, I think it made me a better senator. How so? Uh, well, I think I had a little, little uh, dose of this national attention, you know, having been national chairman and running around the country and all that stuff, making little, quote, big speeches. Uh, and maybe not being attentive enough to, you know, people who sent me there. So I, I think, uh, you know, the, the old adage, you're hearing gets better election year, you know, you hear voices you haven't heard since the last election. But did you, uh, in other words, after 74, you never thought of it as an automatically safe seat? Well, I thought it was pretty safe, but I, I you know, uh, Dr. Roy was a tough candidate. I mean, he, you know, he was uh, been in Congress. He was bright guy, and he lived in the right area. Uh, and then a divorce happened, and then abortion became the. I, I think it was the first time that got national attention because the New York Times is out there and all the big papers following us around. Uh, and suddenly abortion became the big issue and, well, you know, you've interviewed him and there were accusations that he'd, he had performed abortions. I don't know if they did or not. And we had these ugly people supporting me that had little fetuses and bottles and run around the state. Running ads, you know, Dole's opponent kills babies. So a pretty ugly campaign. They were saying the last time in the debate, and or Hutchison, wherever it was. Is it, that raises an interesting point. I mean, you, you really can't control all of your supporters, can you? Oh. No, and some of them you wish weren't your supporters. I mean, you know, that they've got their own agenda. They just use you uh, as sort of a stepladder or they, they get on your, they ride on your back. Uh, or they probably want you to win, but that's secondary. That's how do I get my name in the paper with this jar or whatever it is or whatever their view might be on anything. And... You know, unfortunately, there are not too many of those, but I've got a, well, they're around both parties, anybody's campaign. Uh, people show up that. Do you think they're relatively more prominent maybe now than they were, maybe because of things like the internet? Oh, yeah, YouTube, all this stuff. Yeah. It's like this, was it HSU, the, the wanted guy who's got money scattered all over the world. All over the world, all over the country, gives an address, this little two-room house that a mailman lives in. You know, yeah, he's back in the news today. The FBI caught him. So, I, I, yeah, I think, you know, with all the cable outlets and people always looking under a rock anyway. Uh, you know, 
Well, that leads into the, a large question. I mean, the party structure certainly means a lot less today than when you went into politics. I mean, yeah, when well, you were in the House or the Senate, for that matter. Or I mean, you've been party chairman. So you, well, you didn't even see it nationally now with the, when we're going to have our primaries and a couple of states may thumb their nose that both parties, the RNC and DNC, they want to, they want to, why should New Hampshire and Iowa, you know, what, what, what makes it, and Nevada, a little, there are three or four exceptions that get in early, what, uh, why are they the chosen few? And, uh, they want to be in before the action's over. I don't blame them in a way. But uh, why, why do you think parties matter less today than 30 years ago? What are, what are the factors that... Again, I don't think you have, you know, maybe the old smoke-filled room, somebody said maybe weren't so bad after all. At least you had people who were interested in what was going to happen. and. Uh, I, I don't say people aren't interested now, and there are a lot of good people involved in both parties, young, old, middle-aged, different religions, different color, whatever. But uh, I, I'm just trying to think in some state where the party real ha really has power. Certainly not my state, Kansas. Parties in shambles. Uh, I don't know of any place where the Republican Party is, or the Democratic Party, really, you know, rules with an iron hand like the good old days, Tammany Hall and yeah. all this stuff. Sure. So, I don't you? think it's, I, I don't, I don't know how you can build a party without some party structure, without somebody other than the candidate providing the leadership. One of the, the uh, I have to ask you this, because every two years when governors are up for election, I mean, you've heard it a million times that how important it is to have a governor, uh, because a governor can really influence, you know, how a state votes. Yeah. Is that, is that true? Yeah. It's like how anybody, Bob Dole, can help you in a congressional race or whatever, you know, maybe a few people, but... The one thing about governor, uh, uh, well, I remember how important Governor Sununu was, you know, in 1988. And, uh, yeah, I think in that case, the governor, when he rolled out all the state employees election morning and he had thousands of signs, plus a snowstorm that helped him. Uh, yeah, Sununu, that's why he became chief of staff. I mean, that governor made a difference. A lot of governors can control their delegation, so yeah, they, you know, I think governors are a lot more important than the senators or house members. <clears throat> now you come out of '74, having you know narrowly won, and yet, I mean, who would have predicted two years later you'd be on the national ticket? Not what me. happened between between <clears throat> those two uh, dates to? <clears throat> I don't know what I did in uh, 75 or 6 that was, rings any bells, but... Uh, Were you, for example, I mean, with the, with the coming Ford-Reagan contest, I assume both camps 
we're interested in your support. Yeah, I think, so. and, and of course, I had a good relation with uh, Nofziger, Lynn Nofziger, of course, with the Reagan camp. And uh, I think Rockefeller put in a good word for me with, with Ford and George Hinman, the National Committeeman. Uh, were you ever in doubt who you were going to support in 76? Not really. I mean, I've just been a Ford guy since we helped elect him leader in the House. And, you know, I went to Missouri, I don't know how many states I went to, with Bob Griffin and others to plead with delegates to help Ford. And, uh, so we'd done a lot of, I mean, I could see why Ford people would at least acknowledge that I'd been helpful. And uh, I, don't, I don't think we were out there at any anti-Reagan crusade. We were out there just telling about the guy we knew, Jerry Ford. Were things as bad in the firm belt? Yeah. I mean, how bad were they? But that may have been a factor, too, I think. Uh, and we did carry the farm states, but how bad? Why was there a problem going into the convention? In the uh, I, I, just trying to think of the numbers. I think the numbers in some of the farm states, Ford was thirty-one percent. Now, whether it was, a, I don't remember precisely whether it was, you know, if it doesn't rain, well, they blame the president, of course, and. Uh, whether it was the program itself, let's see, 74, 75. We had pretty good programs then. Was there a grain deal with the Soviet Union that was factored into uh, any no, of this? Oh, there were some China deals, but that was earlier. I, I don't, I mean, you know, farmers are a pretty rest, restless group. And it used to be American Farm Bureau, pretty conservative, market-oriented group, but now their hand is out longer than anyone's as far as subsidies. And even this year is worse than ever. So, uh, do you wish? I don't know precisely, but I think we're just for some reason. You know, the the economy wasn't that good. We had the wind buttons and some people weren't doing too well and farm prices weren't very high, as I recall. And I don't say the farmers blamed the president, but, you know, that they thought maybe somebody else could do better. So. How, what's, what's the sequence of events leading to your selection? as vice president. I mean, you had some conversations with Lynn Nobziger? Uh Yeah, I think I told Lynn, I can't remember, I think after it was pretty well determined, of course it was late at night, I don't think Ford ever thought about a vice president until what, after midnight? So we're, we're, So in other words, what you're saying is, there's no campaign going in advance of the convention. This is really a last minute. I went out there, remember Noel Cook, a pretty good speechwriter, and he and I and Elizabeth 
that was our team. The three of us went out there and had a room in the mule block. And, and we were thinking, well, you know, he's got trouble in the farm belt, uh, veterans, all that stuff. Uh, I've been a pretty loyal Republican, been chairman of the party. And now the favorite, of course, was John Connolly. And all the TV cameras were hanging around his room, and we were down the hall. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I've read, I don't know precisely what happened, but apparently at one or two o'clock they had a discussion, then they broke up for an hour or two, and then they got back together again. And they started talking about names, and my name came up, and I always thought the guy that might poison me would be Mel Laird. Not that he didn't like me, but uh, he was always the kind of guy that would put poison in the water upstream and then go into the city and ask what's going on here. You know, I mean, he, I mean it as a compliment. This guy was smart. He was good at it. He was good at it. And uh, he may have had another candidate, but Bob Griffin was a friend of mine, and uh, and then uh, I know Rockefeller put in a good word, and then somebody, I think, ran the name by Reagan, and he said, no problem, in effect, no problem with him. Uh, of course, they're already looking at the next election. They probably will if this guy... We can beat that guy, you know. Maybe they thought I was weak, so that probably wouldn't. Who knows what their real thinking was. But Lynn was a friend, and I think he might have passed the word on to Reagan. You know, he's a good guy. We worked together in RNC. And I can tell you, I know that Conway was never seriously considered because um, Conway refused in advance of the Texas primary, when Ford asked him more than once for his support. Oh. And Conway had more than one, Conway wanted more than one meeting with the president at the White House, but Conway wouldn't do anything. And um, Ford didn't forget. And my sense is that Howard Baker started out as probably front runner. Uh, Ruckelshaus was seriously Ruckelshaus, they were flying him in, Ann Armstrong. Ann Armstrong, yeah. The yeah, I, thought it was gonna, I, thought, I was convinced it was going to be Ruckelshaus because he was flying in from the West Coast or somewhere. And I told Elizabeth, well, looks like, you know, he's from a key state, Indiana, and generally one we win, but at least a bigger state than Kansas, sort of Midwest, Maybe in those days, maybe a little too close to Michigan, not to make any difference about geography. But uh, I think they also thought that was a way to offset Watergate. I mean, after, this is a guy who, you know, had uh, yeah, and I've resigned. been chairman of the party, so you know, always even though Senator Irvin made a specific finding that I wasn't involved. Uh, we had plenty, 
Plenty of people showing up with signs, pardon me, you know. <laughs> so but the, then the, I remember the interview after the election with Barbara Walters when she asked me, did you cost Ford the election? You know, which I, boy, you really, talking about cutting your legs off, you know. No. But are you heard, I, I remember you saying you heard from other people like Hubert Humphrey. Yeah. Who were, oh, yeah, we went down that ice cream. So, you know, they they got to find a scapegoat. It's gonna, you, it's going to be somebody else. And because uh, he'd been through the same thing. If he'd have done this, he'd have won. If he'd have done it, blah, 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 blah. And I don't know what quite uh, what they were blaming me for. Maybe the Democratic War and the debate, which came right out of the playbook. I mean, I didn't, you know, that's now, who what. Now, put the playbook together? I mean, we were definitely. Well, I talked to Kissinger and all these big shots, you know. I don't know whether White House or somebody put it together. I didn't. Yeah, it wasn't something that your yeah. campaign put together. So I didn't dream up the Democratic Wars. <laughs> but, uh,. What kind of relationship had you had with Mondale uh, before that? Uh, Pretty good. We were on the same committee, finance. Even afterwards, I took him up when he was uh, an ambassador to Japan, introduced him along with a couple others. You know, we were friends. He's been out at the Institute. In fact, I have a letter on my desk saying what a great place it is and wish they were doing as well and all that stuff, you know. But... Uh, What kind of preparation did you do for that debate? Oh, we spent a lot of time in a hotel room. I don't know, three days, and pe different people would come in. At the time, you're ready to... <laughs> Here comes the economic guy. How much value? Can you prepare for the I don't debate? Think so. I think I'd have been better off if I hadn't done anything. I don't mean that, you know, just let, yeah. let me do it myself instead of trying to get all the stuff in your mind that somebody else, and I don't say they're not good preparation and good information, but maybe it's not you, it's, it's somebody else speaking. Yeah. So. No, I don't, I don't, I don't say you shouldn't prepare at all. Remember, of course, in '96, it was Fred Thompson who played Bill Clinton. Did a good job in the de debate prep. I'm not sure how many people watched uh, VP debates then, but the press went with the Democratic Wars thing. Did you sense now? Did someone, at what point did someone say to you that was a mistake? Or did anyone say, I mean, other than the press? I mean, No, in fact, it? Mel Laird called me and said it was great. <laughs> and he liked my line about who was a big labor leader, couldn't, <laughs> would have been on the ticket, but he couldn't afford to give up his job, you know, the big cigar-smoking guy. Uh, uh, George Meany, or? Yeah, George yeah. Meany, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but uh, 
how did how did your operation mesh with the, the Ford? We didn't have any. That was another problem. You know, Ford, as I said, he was so busy getting the nomination, can't fault him for it. So the last thing he was worried about is what's going to happen with the number two guy or gal or whoever. <clears throat> and, uh, and I think Ann Armstrong was a pretty, you know, she was on, on the list for quite a while. Uh, I remember on my first trip, I can't remember, where'd we go to Legion Convention or somewhere? Mm. I just had a couple of guys with me. <laughs> we got on a commercial flight, which is fine, flew out there, gave a speech, somebody threw together, and that was it. And then later we started getting a little more structure, but not much. Now, did Gerson was one of our speechwriters, and John McConnell, who I think is McConnell still at the White House. Yeah. 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 Gerson's being accused of yeah. plagiarism. Did 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 Nofziger travel with you during yeah. that campaign? Yeah, he traveled in a while. Of course, he always wanted me to take somebody's head off. So. <laughs> You got to be tough in this business. But he was a happy warrior, though, wasn't he? I mean, oh, yeah, he loved this stuff. He just loved the needle Democrats that he could wake. Reminds me of something of Schumer, but he's not quite as yeah. nasty as Schumer. But, it, but uh, yeah, he'd, love, he'd get up in the morning thinking, what can I do to ring their bell today? <laughs> so... <laughs> And he always, you know, he always had these terrible jokes you had to listen to. Puns, I guess he called them. <laughs> <coughs> now, but he was a good guy, good-hearted guy. And he later had, um, he never spent any jail time. Did I think he had to pay a fine? Yeah, yeah. Or some lobbying infraction, both he and Mike Deaver. The whole Rose Garden strategy, I mean, I assume you weren't really consulted on that. That was something that they decided, you know, in the White House. He was going to be at work getting the nation's work done. And, uh, well, I used to say, you know, they sent me out on the briar patch, and he was in the Rose Garden. So, well, There's this wonderful story, and you can see Stu Spencer saying this right about that. You know, when Stu Spencer says to, because Ford wants to go out and campaign, you know, Ford wants to campaign. And, and Stu Spencer says, you don't understand, Mr. President, you're an effing lousy campaigner. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know any other president you could talk to like that. No, but you could to Ford. Yeah. And well, he, but when he got out there, you know, maybe if it had gone a day or two earlier, might have won. He got on that train, went all over. People liked him, and uh, he couldn't get away from the pardon. I don't care what. Did that keep coming up in your travels? I mean, it, it it came up not always directly. I mean, after the press had their couple of flings, well, you know they. But the people are always out there with signs, you know. 
they're going to get on TV and it's going to remind people every day of what Ford did. Pardon me, Mr. President. Uh, what else? And then there was some allegation that I'd taken money from uh, Guy named Claude Wilde with Gulf Oil Company, who had given me an Inaway, and I don't know, there were 15 or 20 of us he'd given cash to, which I don't think was illegal at the time, but he apparently gave it secretly. But what he did when he pleaded guilty. He left off the names of the guys he liked, <laughs> so, so whether Bill Katz got it, which he says he, he can't recall, uh, probably did, but, but Danny and I and others were not involved, but they spent a lot of time on that, and they came to my office, they went, oh, what's his name, Washington Post. Uh, starts with a P, Pincus. Yeah. He spent a week going through all my files, all my records. He couldn't find anything. So but that was out there for a while. But did Watergate change the climate? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And everybody's asking you questions they probably wouldn't ask you before. And, but. Compared to today, <laughs> it was pretty tame yeah. in 76. What uh, kinds of places did you go to? I mean, I assume, I mean, a lot of, a lot of rural? Yeah. Um, yeah I, I don't remember my, yeah, I remember, can't remember where the state fair was in Minnesota. Where was it? Uh, That's when I announced they are going to raise prices, I got, and I got a call from President Ford, he said, just so you know in the future, I will make those kind of announcements. I said, yes, sir, Mr. President, <laughs> I, got the, I got the message. <laughs> I think that's the only time in the whole election that he ever called and said, well, I think you shouldn't be doing that. Because, you know, and I shouldn't have been doing that. Here I am out at the state fair with some Republican congressman, Mankato, yeah. Minnesota. Yeah. Muddy. What kind of uh, contact was there between the, the two campaigns? Um, any kind of formal Liaison. consultation between, you know, your operation and his, or uh, was it? More I think it was sort of a. I mean, just in terms of coordinating strategy. I don't say we were freelancing, but you know, there. Now there's a there's there's a story that one day you got out a map. Yeah, and so let's go here. <laughs> yeah, we turned around midair and said, let's go back, visit somewhere. We didn't know what to do. You know, that's probably a true story. I can't remember, but uh, so we weren't. I would say that was an exception, but uh, you know, I, I think the Ford people would say, "Well, we ought to send Dole down here. 
and it, they might say, well, today's Monday, maybe, maybe you ought to go there tomorrow, or maybe you ought to go there, you know, whatever you had planned, you had to change. And uh, you, you but we, I think he had a lot of, he, he trusted me, so he didn't, the only thing he ever cautioned me was don't, don't have too many wisecracks, you know, that was, <laughs> so said we don't need another, we don't need a com comedian or whatever, Jack, Jack Benny or, well, that was Huck Boyd, Jack Benny line. But he said, do you think you can control your uh, sense of humor? I said, well, probably, I'll try or something like that. There's a, there's a, a you go to the, I think Darlington to the, to the um, car yeah. race down there. And just reading the media coverage, you got a sense you felt a little bit like a fish out of water. I mean, just the yeah. culture of... Uh, well, and Carter was there. And Carter, yeah, right here. I was talking about... I'd never been to a race like that before anyway. And... Uh, well, I learned later on in life what a great opportunity that is. But... Uh, some point, I think he said something about how he was going to invite everyone to the to the White House, and you had some great line about how they're going to have to enlarge the place. To, yeah. uh, to, did I say that at the race? I think so. Probably, yeah. I probably did. <laughs> well, I figured they'd all come. If it happened, we'd make way for him somehow. <laughs> was he was he a difficult opponent to to run against? I mean, he seems, and I don't mean the word slippery in a negative way. But, I mean, ideologically, you couldn't really pin him down. Because he actually ran against Ford from the right in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, he was... Uh, outsider. Outsider. Uh, you know, he had a Naval Academy graduate, smart guy, been a governor, peanut farmer. Oh, I saw so many of those little peanuts on people's... That was his little button, and uh, we used to joke that we thought Mondale was a suburb in California. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he was pretty, and of course he wouldn't campaign on weekends. He'd shut it down one on Friday night, which is probably smart. He wasn't going to get press anyway. He'd go back to Plains and uh, then start again on Monday. But, you know, there was a big gap which we started to close, and it was closing and closing and closing after people finally had about all the Nixon pardon they could swallow. But the, uh, the economy wasn't all that good, and the the wind stuff was kind of made fun of, and uh, I was trying to think. Well, then uh, we were given orders to be sure we reminded people how smart Ford was. You know, what was he, top number three in his class at Yale and All-American football player because people said he was, when well, he'd slipped a couple of times coming out down the plane. That's right. But you know the great story. I mean, it's so Ford. Um, 
Kennerly was at the foot of the plane. Of course, Kennerly was a smart ass. And yeah. um, he, Ford slipped down. And Kennerly says, uh, nice of you to drop in. <laughs> and uh, and then later on, people around Ford, of course, you know, everyone around a president, their job is to uh, tell him how great he is. And they were, they were criticizing photographers. Ford says, well, but of course they took the picture. They would have lost their jobs yeah. if they didn't. Yeah. Which tells you something about the guy yeah, yeah. Ford is. But then, of course, there was the, the Polish gaffe. I mean, people talk about Democrat wars, but, I mean, the fact is he said it, and then, of course, he got, he's stubborn, and he dug in his heels. And then he wouldn't back off for days, or well, the whole weekend, as I remember. Right. And I, I think in his heart he knew he was probably right. I mean, the people were free, but... Not really, you know. Did you have any conversation with him during during that time? I can't recall any. Yeah. Uh, it certainly took me off the hook for all of my previous sins. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, but then in the last couple of weeks, I mean, the momentum. Is oh, really he got out on the road, did a great job, and uh, I. I uh, he used to, in the last couple of weeks, he had called me. I remember once I was in New Mexico, and he just wanted to let me know that we're really doing great and, you know, don't give up and keep working hard and don't, you know, in other words, stay on the message. Don't get something that they'll go after us on. Sort of little pep talks that you know were closing the gap, and he was right. I, I'm sure we had the same numbers, but what was it? Uh, Eight thousand votes in Ohio, or three thousand in Hawaii, or something. And election night, were you at the White House? Yeah. What was the? That was sad. He went to bed before it was over. I remember we went home. Who else was there? I think Joe Garagiola was there. Uh, let's see. Somewhere I read Jake Javits was there, of all people. Ford had this great friend in California. Was he and his wife were there. That Leon Palmer? Yeah, okay. I think Leon was there. Saw Le- well, in fact, I saw Leon at the funeral. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember about the Ford family, but we were kind of seated up front. Yeah. And it wasn't good news, and it was torture sitting there, you know. I mean, you, you, you sensed early on that it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, and he did too. I mean, there wasn't much jubilation in the room. I can't happen. It seemed like there was something, some state early on didn't work out well. Couldn't have been Ohio. Well, and of course, the South, you lost virtually the entire South. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what. Including John Connolly's Texas. I think Connolly had assured Ford, you're going to win. And uh, 
I can take Texas. Yeah. Do you carry any southern state? Carry Virginia? Virginia? Yeah. I think that's it. It's amazing in 30 years how the electoral map has totally reversed. Because remember, you also carried California, Oregon, Washington, New Jersey, Connecticut, Michigan. It's, it's just like, you know, it's turned inside out. Kind of an anti-southern, I think. Well, now that's how Fred Thompson thinks he's going to carry the South and every southern state, plus a few more in the Midwest. See what happens. The um, you remember the first time you saw Ford after the election? I mean, how? how I assume he acknowledged your your work and. Yeah, I don't remember whether we got together or I went to the White House. You know, he always said we were a good team. I was he that over and over. Oh, we were a great team. You know, don't feel bad about it. You know, don't. Yeah. You know, he, that's the kind of guy he was. I mean, it was I was going to say you did a hell of a lousy job. Otherwise, we would have won. You, know. <laughs> uh, you are right. You know, by the way, people always talk about the pardon, and it was a factor, but it. If you go back and you look in the last week of that campaign, there were some economic numbers that were released that suggested at the very least that the, the economy had stalled. Yeah. And, and I, I, I've always wondered at the very end whether people sort of pulled back and just thought, you know, well, maybe I, I, I don't want a continuation of this. Yeah. I'll take a chance on, on change. They weren't excited about Carter. I mean, some people were, look, but, but I, you know. And in some cases, they weren't too excited about Ford. I mean, maybe either ticket, you know, they weren't. But. Uh, Did you have any contact with Nixon during that campaign? I had contact with Reagan. You know, you? They sent me to meet him at the Denver airport, and I met him up in New Hampshire, and. We're trying to get him to do some things. Did you uh, sense that he was uh, sort of dragging his feet a looking bit? Looking ahead. <laughs> Not in the sense that, but, you know, hindsight's perfect. Yeah. I think it was more staff-driven, you know. And let's face it, when he came back from that, up in the upper balcony that night and made that speech, I mean, God, I mean, that probably, uh, and he, Probably didn't intend to do it, but that didn't help Ford any. All people talked about in that couple weeks was Ronald Reagan's speech, not the president's. So that took two weeks off your campaign. So, did you did you get the bug? I mean, as a result of that campaign, I mean, wh when did you first think about eighty? about yourself in, in terms of the... I don't know when it was, but I probably shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have. It was probably a good thought, but should have been just left that way, a thought. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but you think, well, I got a little name recognition, da-da-da. 
But if you just, somebody just said, you know, you know, Ronald Reagan's been working on this thing for four years. And, and it happened, and it's, I got to be chairman of the finance committee, so it's a pretty good consolation prize. What was your relationship like with President Carter? Uh, Carter, it was, it was okay. I mean, we didn't really have much contact. You know, I've been to the White House. And I don't think he ever said a, any bad thing. I don't, you know, I think I referred to him once as Southern Fried McGovern, but other than that, I was very nice. <laughs> so, but Did he lobby you on the Panama Canal treaties? I don't think so, because he knew I was pretty close to Laxalt on the issue. And I told Howard Baker, I said, Howard, I just, you know, I, you may be doing the right thing, but I just, And he probably did do the right thing, you know. It's one of those votes you probably wasn't that important to look back on it. What do you think were Carter's strengths and uh, and weaknesses? You know, I mean, obviously the Camp David Accord is something that he, you know, will be remembered Carter. for. Carter? Yeah. Yeah, I remember being at the White House when they shook hands, you know, the... Israelis, and, and that was a great day. I mean, everybody was upbeat about, boy, we're finally going to get it done in the Mideast. And, and I think Carter really worked hard at it. He didn't have that much experience. Uh, see, who do you have as Secretary of State? Was it Warren Christopher? No, that would be, uh, no, well, he had Cy Vance. Original. Oh, Cy Vance, and then he quit. And then, and then he quit, and Ed Muskie. Yeah. Well, Vance was, Ed Muskie's a great guy, but I, I don't know about his qualification for, but Vance was apparently top top quality, but he quit over principle. Some, Something people don't do very often in this town. Not in this town, no. <laughs> they want more principle and, and interest. <laughs> so uh, now, you were the Republican Party was changing in those years. I mean, did you have a sense that it was moving to the right? Um, Ford was sort of Ford was, yeah. Well, in Ford, I Ford I would describe as a moderate conservative, uh, and in those days. Going back to even Nixon, abortion wasn't an issue. I don't want that had to pop up, you know. It's still out there. I mean, it's still when they have a debate every 20 minutes of every debate's on abortion or who can build the longest and the highest fence, you know. And, uh, yeah, Ford was, well, Nixon, you know, Nixon was a moderate Sir, he couldn't be nominated today, I don't think. Maybe today he could, but he couldn't have been nominated 
say, 10 years ago. I mean, the par I don't think the party is quite as, the so-called religious right is gone, in my view. Really? Yeah, I mean, there's, who's out there? I mean, Pat Robertson, you know, they ought to be, he's probably got a guardian, he needs one. But he's not on very much anymore, and Falwell's gone, and uh, what's, the, what's the bright young guy from Georgia's in all kinds of trouble? Oh, Ralph Reed. Ralph Reed was sort of the guiding light. There isn't any, quote, big Christian right rally where you've got to go down there and genuflect and take an oath and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but which, that, that dovetailed, I mean, that sort of... Really, as you sort of come out of a scene as yeah. presidential timber, oh. it, it coincides they, with the They were in their high over there, yeah. They were, they were at their acme, their peak. Uh, just like this stupid oath he had to take in New Hampshire, you wouldn't raise taxes, you know. I mean, uh, was that Grover? Norquist. Yeah. And they're still arguing about it. I mean, a couple of them haven't signed the oath. Giuliani and uh, McCain, I think. I don't know. But I should have just signed the, the damn thing and forgotten. I mean, well, how do you deal with with interest groups, pressure groups, whatever you want to call them? I mean, you, you have well, to. My you have theory to was them. why not just sign every oath? You know, yeah, well, I'll never do this, I'll never do this, I'll never do this, I'll never do this. Couldn't sell that to Grover. No, he wanted it in writing. I think we made him change it a little bit. You know, he wouldn't even couldn't even close loopholes. If you saw some big company escaping millions in taxes, you couldn't fix it because that'd be a tax increase. That's crazy. But we got both parties have those kind of people that they have their own agenda again. They're not really thinking of the party. They're thinking of how's Grover going to make some money and get on TV and write a book. And Is that one of the differences between being successful as a legislator and running for president? I mean, it's a different kind of climate on the Hill where you can still function to some degree buy closed doors or I mean you can be practical you can, pragmatism can still can still prevail I mean because people want to get something done as opposed to running for president which is now theater as much as anything yeah. else yeah but I've always thought the president was would be a little insulated from all this you know he's not going to have any direct contact with these lobbyists you know like all the government reps around here that swarm around your office in the Senate or Sheila Burke's office or somebody's. And, and I don't quarrel with that. You have a right to petition your governments in the Constitution. But uh, the president, you know, he didn't have these people knocking. Well, Lincoln, they used to walk right in the White House, didn't they, when Lincoln was president? But so he's a, but he, but he's still, He's dealing with the big boys, the CEOs, you know, and they're having little powwows and parties and writing big checks and all that stuff. Uh, but I think there, there are times when people want to get things done. I don't know. 
I think Gene uh, Budig, the former KU chancellor and, and president of the American League, is writing a book on eight great Americans. And I guess because I'm a Kansan, I'm one of the eight. And so he's trying to put together things that, that I may have done while I was in the Senate like the Martin Luther King holiday bill and all stuff like that, but really don't associate with the Republicans, hospice care, that kind of stuff. But you're right, I mean, I think you, you develop a relationship, uh, you know, you can have friends on the other side of the aisle, and I'm certain they still do today, but then uh, if you really trust each other, you can get things done, like Senator Moyna and I, we had a great time fixing Social Security. You know, we had. We you think had, that could happen today? We trusted each other. I don't. I don't think so. He almost endorsed me for re-election, and I did the same. <laughs> Not that he needed it, <laughs> but. And the you, you there, there is a miscarriage of something. Of all the things this guy did. He never really got credit for it when he died. We tried to get the AARP. We were going to write a big piece on how he rescued Social Security. They didn't want it. You think all he had done for seniors and, well, he's gone, you know. This is a time with short memories. Yeah, real short. I remember when Senator Shuffle from Kansas died. He was a very nice man from a small town. And he used to come out to Kansas, and I was just a young guy, and he would take off his watch and put it on the table, and he'd say, now let me tell you what's going on in Washington. That's all the way, always how he would start. And then he proceeded to tell you <laughs> for, at length. But he was a good guy and worked hard. He died suddenly, and his remember the wife at the funeral. His wife said, "I was in the house." Said Bob, "Don't work so hard because people they won't care two days after you're gone." Now she was a little bitter, but uh, did she have a point? Hmm? Did she have a point? I think so, but he was pretty well liked and. Uh, I didn't leave any big footprints, but he worked hard for his state. And but I think people, I think there is a tendency to move on. You know, people move on. So let me ask. I've got to tell you, not, not part of this, but the thing I'm doing now is. Have you heard about these honor, what they call honor flights? Where in different, it's 18 states now, where they're, let's, let's say Michigan, like in Grand Rapids, they raise $40,000, they charter a big jet, they load it up with old World War II vets early in the morning, they fly to Washington, they visit the memorials, but primarily the World War II memorial. They have a box lunch. They're the 
get all the cold water they want, people there to take care of them, and they fly back home. And it's part of the greatest experience, you know, some are ever going to have. And some are in wheelchairs. This Saturday, tomorrow, for example, <clears throat> and I'll be out there, I'm sort of the official greeter, going to have 600 from North Dakota, Ohio, Missouri, and Michigan. And, uh, in fact, Chris Wallace is doing his Power Player of the Week. It's going to be this group. I, I, I called him and I said, Chris, you ought to, I said, oh, that's a no-brainer. My, my dad's a World War II vet. So, well, you'll have to write a story or something on it. Well, you know, it's funny. It's out of sequence, but let's, <coughs> let's look at the World War II Memorial. How, I mean, how did it, how did you get involved? How did, how did it all The day Clinton out? gave me the uh, little medal down there, the Good Citizens Medal he gave me. Medal uh, of Freedom. Yeah. I think it was, I don't say it was, I don't say set up, but they had a little mock-up of the memorial. This happened to be down the road and down some other room. And they had some legionnaires there and some other veterans as guests. And I think it was Clinton's, uh, Senator, while you're here, why don't you take a look at what the, they're planning on here? And I did, and I was very impressed by it. The next thing I know, I'm getting a call. They hired some headhunter and paid him money to figure out they ought to call Bob Dole, <laughs> which really irked me. Then we could never get any money out of this guy's firm for the memorial. really burned me up. So that's how I got into it, totally by accident. But I needed help on the corporate side, so I called Fred Smith, said he was going to be in town. And he was with? FedEx. FedEx Fred. And uh, so I, I worked on this little speech, went down to his hotel, walked in, sat down. And I started, he said, do you want me to do this? I said, yep, okay. <laughs> said, I had five uncles in World War II. And he's a Vietnam hero, veteran. So anyway, it's now the most visited memorial because all these guys are going and their kids are bringing them back. And this program is really, uh, really, uh, you, know, you can just, when they walk in, first, they must think about when they were young and all the things they did and you could just see the, you know, but then they all have fun and laugh. Some, they generally bring a little flag and they go by the pillar that says Ohio and they'll all have a little prayer there and place something there. And then they'll visit with the young kids. And so it's really somebody, and a guy that thought of it was a guy who runs a laundry in North Carolina. Just a nice guy named Jeff Miller. And somehow he got some idea, and, and now it's spreading like wildfire. It's really, a, we're trying to get the New York Times to cover it. You got any good friends there Saturday? Adam Nagorny covered me. He's a pretty nice guy. Yeah. And, and uh, the other, the lady that covered me. Seal? Catherine 
Not calf. What's her last name? Seal. No. But she gave me a pretty hard time in the campaign, but then we became pretty good friends. She wants to talk to me about my obituary. So I'm not too anxious to talk to her about. But I might if she agrees to go out and do a story. Now, there is a, a, a deal, <laughs> you know? There's always a deal somewhere. <laughs> what did Tip O'Neill say about deals? As long as he was in on it? Or maybe that was Russell Long. <laughs> the memorial, how, did you have any idea when you said okay that it would take no. long, be as frustrating? Difficult? I mean, what were the frustrations? Raising the money. I mean, that, you know, we didn't have anything to do with the architecture or anything else. Who was going to build it? Uh, of course, it was the controversy over putting it on the mall. Uh, they had this group called Save the Mall. They took us to court. Our defense was, <laughs> we already saved it in World War II. <laughs> we can't save it again. And uh, they, they found a couple of poor old senile World War II veterans to head the group. I remember running into one of them at the drugstore, and I said, well, what are you doing this for? He said, oh, I don't know. I've got to be doing something. You know, so, uh, but we got in, it started off with $70 million, and then $80 million, $90 million, ended up 160 some million. But we got $15 million left to take care of it. And the government put in $5 million for startup money, and they paid for the dedication, and they did some other little thing with coins, but the rest of it's all interest or private. Did anyone ever tell you why it went from $70 million to $160 million? Well, the lawsuit delayed us for three years, and I always think these people bid low anyway, you know, or estimate it low, just, but uh, it was... You know, we asked for a lot of, and then we got the states to give us a dollar a head for every veteran in Kansas. We got a dollar, and it, I remember, uh, oh, what's the governor of Pennsylvania? It was a FEMA director, or oh, home, Tom Tom Rich. Yeah, he gave us two dollars a head. Pennsylvania it's the biggest check we got. I remember going to California and getting a big check. So that, that helped, but most of it, and we were really uh, kind of, I don't want to say depressed, but it just wasn't going well. And we were all frustrated and getting upset with each other. It's costing too much. Why are they doing this? You know, I'm tired of raising this money. Uh, and so we talked to Walmart. We'd already talked to them once, and they said no. Talked to them a second time, and they agreed to set up a little kiosk in every store, and they raised $18 million for us in a matter of, you know, and that really raised our spirits. I mean, oh, we we knew we could do it then. And the Legion gave us $7 million, the VFW $7. So. Were you ever consulted about the design? Were you ever, uh, did you have any input at all? In no, your? but there's some controversy about they left out God and some of the things on the wall 
turns out that what the, the quotes are accurate. But somebody started, you know how they are, but they didn't put God in there. Should they had the word God in there. So I, I stayed out of that controversy. Remember, there was the one thing when I, I go down there, like everyone else, I find it extraordinary. The one thing I wish they kept, it was, I think it was the original design included a cenotaph, which would have been a kind of a central focus. Yeah. And I don't know why it disappeared, but obviously someone decided it had to go. We changed a couple of things. Senator Lautenberg had a concern. Bob Carey and Senator Carey, the, the, the berms were too high, which was a good suggestion. It was cutting off the view. And, uh, so, you know, they made some minor changes, but we were so busy trying to raise the money. Uh, and, of course, a couple of the architects who didn't get it were upset. One of them said, looks like something Mussolini built because it's so big. And, and, I've, and I've asked, just between the three of us, that if Warner could see if I could be buried there at, the, at that site, I think, he, I think he'd have to get a bill passed. So I know it probably never happened. But it really is now, it's uh, it's like the Dole Institute. Every day there's something going on there. Plus, you know, it's interesting. Now that it's actually built and people see it and experience it, you don't want to hear any more criticism about the oh. location. Well, the, well, particularly he's better. I mean, when they leave, you know, I was down there Thursday with some veterans from Ohio and... Uh, you know, just a whole, makes their whole year, at least a year. Because how many can afford to get on a plane, spend the night in a motel, see the memorial, go back home, particularly if they're in a wheelchair, you know, and this, then, and they bring these younger people on, their daughters, sons, to take care of them. It just, and when they get off the little bus, there's the American Legion standing there with a cold bottle of water. <laughs> so it really is, uh, I don't know how we're going to handle 600 tomorrow because they all want to get pictures. And uh, Is that the most satisfying thing you've done since yeah, leaving the I Senate? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that and the Veterans Commission, I think, was because we're not really finished with that. I think most, well, I'm sure anybody who's been in public life, I'm sure Ford, Reagan, you've written about all of them. I think I spent 80% of my time doing pro bono stuff. I mean, people writing me about prostate cancer or veterans or immigration and what, you know, so we we try to do what we can, but you call people, don't you? Yeah. Call people. With, we just had a young guy in uh, Kansas lost two legs and an arm in Iraq. His name was Sergeant Matt Lammers, and boy, you talk about it, spirit. These kids have got it. 
just talked to his dad a couple of days ago. I told him to create a, set up a fund, not the, the government's always going to take care of his medical and education, but there could, you know, could be an emergency. Maybe he won't be somewhere, but he can't go to the government, or, or maybe he wants his kids to go to school. Uh, but you know, he's kind of, he thinks maybe it's begging. I said, you know, people are going to be honored to give, you know. So. You know, you know all about that. Uh, yeah, I said, well, you know, I, I don't mind. I had a little fun, eighteen hundred dollars, but, <laughs> but his could be. And what are you going to do with one? You know, it's like Max Cleland. I mean, what do you do with one? One limb left. Uh, you know John Kemp got all four limbs gone. Of course, he's born that way, but he travels alone, gets his ticket out. Talk about inspiration, that guy. And I've tried for years to get the administration to make him assistant secretary of something in HHS because he would really be a Without any success. Did you anyway, the memorial is sort of. We had a great group of people, and uh, we didn't finish too far beyond schedule. I think about a year beyond. But the lawsuit did take a lot of time. Have you ever heard from any of those folks since? Or heard of the I mean, they, antagonists they disappeared. I mean, the people who were the organized opposition. Not really. They yeah. sort of went. It was all, I think, my own view of spirited by an architect who didn't get it, the job. And uh, and I don't know. Maybe there is a better design. I I couldn't prove it by me. I I wasn't what we were hired for. Fred Smith was a lot of help, and uh, uh, you, as I recall, at one point you were kind of frustrated with Hollywood. They didn't give us anything, except for Spielberg. Uh, he paid for uh, the groundbreaking reception, about four hundred thousand dollars, and Tom Hanks, who who made some PSAs for us. And then I talked to the chair. Uh, she's Armenian, so I had a little influence with her. She knew about Dr. Kalikian. But it was almost too late for her to do anything. And Ernest Borgnine, remember Ernest? Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to help, but you know, at his age, it wasn't much he could do, but boy, it was. We couldn't get any of the studios to, except for Spielberg. And they made all these movies and made millions of dollars. We thought, surely that'd be, you know, if Bob Strauss would have been in better health, I could have gotten him to put the squeeze on, because he knows all those people. And, and Jack Bellany, rest his soul, a good guy. But we just couldn't get him interested. We tried. He said, well, he said, we get so many demands. I said, well, 
How many movies have you made like The Longest Day, which I saw again last week on TV? What's it like watching a war movie? I mean, does it take you back or do you draw the contrast? It seemed like a little exaggerated, but, you know, I wasn't in some of that heavy fighting like these poor guys. And I went to a 99th Division reunion last Sunday morning, and they were in the Battle of the Bulge, and Americans had 81,000 casualties, not all killed, had, I think 19,000 killed and 70,000 or 60,000 wounded. Uh, and boy, I, I'd forgotten about how big that, you know, we didn't do very well in the Battle of the Bulge. We were caught by surprise, and, and uh, Montgomery goofed up and was a couple of days late in doing what he's supposed to do. And then he made some statement that it irritated all the American generals. He only mentioned Eisenhower instead of even saying anything good about the others, Patton and the others. Anyways, there were quite a few Kansans in that division, so I met about 20 from Kansas. Has it ever occurred to you that, you know, in some ways time's been good to you? I mean, you didn't win the presidency. But you've had, a, in many ways, a remarkable career since 96. I mean, in some ways, you've almost been reintroduced to the American people. You've become sort of the face of the World War II generation. You know, you had the satisfaction of working on the memorial. Plus, you had this whole sort of pop culture career yeah. with the commercials. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. You've gotten to have, you know, a little bit of fun... Uh, yeah, I think about Dukakis and some of these guys who just sort of disappeared. And I didn't see any reason to disappear. I mean, I didn't want to become a Clinton critic for the rest of my life. I figured there are a lot of good things you could do. So, I don't know how long the law firm wants to pay me for doing pro bono work. But <laughs> so... But the whole advertising career, I mean, how did, yeah, that, how did our, that come about? I mean, the, the By accident, we got a call. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have any anything about this stuff. And uh, most of it we gave away. So we did the, uh, what they call the Viagra commercial, which Viagra was never mentioned in the commercial. It was all about men's health. But it's pretty obvious what the message was. And after I did it, I got cold feet, and I made them hold it because I knew I was going to be slaughtered by the uninformed people in the press. But, but we had a lot of fun making the Visa commercial, but I couldn't get in my hometown. And, and we did a little one with Britney Spears, a little cameo where the dog was barking. But that was before all of her escapades. <laughs> <laughs> but something changed your mind on the Viagra commercial because they 
they ran it. I mean, did you did you change your mind? We had to, well, we had to change the change the commercials some. Okay. Yeah, well, I knew it was going to be. Uh, but I've had more than one woman come up in the airport and whisper, "Thank you, Senator." No. <laughs> <laughs> So it wasn't a total failure. <laughs> well, in fact, it actually brought a subject out of the closet that... Uh, well, plus you learn about all these things, about high blood pressure and all diabetes and things. I never knew anything about that stuff. If you go see your doctor, you know, it's that not to be dysfunction. It can be, you know, something else that you ought to take care of, so... But I remember one guy introduced me one night. I think it was Kentucky, and oh, he went on. He had every Viagra joke that had ever been told, and he. Well, I think I've told you this story. So when he finally finished, I got up and I really appreciate that. I appreciate it so much. I've I brought you a year's supply. Here's one tablet. <laughs> <laughs> and he was very quiet the rest of the evening. <laughs> <laughs> were there were there were there people who came to you to advertise things that you said no thanks? Yeah, we wouldn't do like beer or wine, things like that. Coors wanted me to do something. I said no. Why should I do something that might encourage some young kid to get drunk and drive or something? And. Uh, Oh, then we had one on, they were going to pay us a lot of money to do one to encourage older people to borrow money to reinvest in their home or to buy a home. And boy, it sounded so good and they were paying like, I don't know, a million, two million dollars, I don't know, a lot of money. But I decided, you know, what if some old person in Kansas falls for this because Bob Dole said it was a good deal and they lose their home? <clears throat> I decided it wasn't worth it. You know, money is not that important. Is there too much money in this town? There's a lot. I don't know if it's too much, but... Uh, Probably more in New York, right? It's yeah. more concentrated there. I don't think yeah. it's concentrated here. But I mean, it seems it just—I don't know—to to the to the layman, it just seems as if maybe it's always revolving. No, I, I can't money. even believe how much money's been spent for presidential races now. I can't remember what we got from the government—sixty-eight million or something. Well, they raise that in two quarters now, in individuals. And, uh, and nobody seems to say much about it, about it like, it. well, that's the way it is. But, I mean, you look at this whole string of, you know, How much did Ford spend, I wonder, in 76? I bet it wasn't very much. Oh, no, I think 20 it was, million? It was like 30, around 30, something like that. But, you know, you, you just see all of these congressmen, you know, and the lobbyists, it, it, just, you just wonder whether, um, and the speaking fees and everything. It's just the whole, the whole package. It's a, it's a very different climate, isn't it? From. Oh yeah. Well, of course, Congress they shut off the speaking fees. 
Hubert and I used to do pretty well on the speaking circuit until they passed the amendment. They wouldn't let us speak anymore. They believed in free speech. We didn't. But uh, our argument was that you guys are only against us because nobody ever asked you to speak. <laughs> if you were speaking, you'd be all for it. Anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I don't think it's gotten any better. I mean, they keep passing these reform laws and ethics reform and as far as I know, you can still get on airplanes. You have to play chartery, but so what? I mean, you can go whenever you want to go, and go to your destination, and they wait for you. It's still a big advantage that other people don't have. You can bundle. You can go out and raise 50000 uh, and uh, which I think used to be one of the big, big no-nos, bundling. You, know, you couldn't do it. You couldn't, I couldn't go around this law firm and say, you know, Elizabeth's running for re-election. I want, can you give me 500, 500, 500? Let me ask you about Elizabeth. You know, because for a while, at least, there was this sort of pop psychology, this notion that somehow Elizabeth had softened you know, your rough edges, you know, and and I've always thought, for whatever it's worth, that it's actually sort of the other way around, that that I think she learned, I mean, she always had the smarts, and she had the degrees, and she had the the book learning, but her political instincts, you know, I mean, I think she learned, I think we kind of learned from each other, I mean, I don't, Remember ever? <clears throat> I don't think she ever told me. You know, I don't think you ought to say that. Uh, but I think she learned a lot about politics because I, I lived and breathed it. You know, I I liked it, and uh, we just we took a vacation in August in North, Western North Carolina, which is beautiful. Oh. Ever want to go somewhere? But while we were on vacation, we visited 12 counties <laughs> up and down Main Street, which I kind of encouraged her because that's what I like. The way we used to campaign at home, we don't have it. You know, get out of your car and walk them down the street. Nobody have to announce you're coming. You know, they're so we had a great time. But uh, I think she's, uh, you know, learned to loosen up a little more. And, do you she, think being in the Senate taught her that, or uh, I think before she got there, yeah, she's a very cautious person, as you know. I mean, uh, she she'd like to control everything. Yeah, yeah and I said you can't. You got to trust somebody in your life. You got you can't. You know you can't write every check and do everything if you can't trust somebody. Or sometimes you do, and they take all your whatever. But whether it's Mo or Joanne, or I always had somebody around that I say, "Here, take care of this." But I think it's the, the way you're raised too, because Elizabeth's mother, 
I used to tell her that she took notes when people got the wrong number. She'd even take little notes. They call, oh, wrong number. What? She'd take a little note on that. And she'd watch these Sunday shows when she was 95, 96, take little notes. <laughs> I mean, it's talk about discipline. But there was sort of always sort of analysis paralysis. I mean, you you can only go over it so many times, and you have to say, "Let's do this," or "Let's don't do this." I think I was maybe I had uh, maybe I was too too quick, but I think Elizabeth probably picked up something from me in that area. And it's one thing I'd say about her. Uh, she's learned to accept, you know, in politics, I don't care how nice you are and all the good things you do, some people aren't going to like it and they're going to write nasty letters to the editor and the editor may not like it. And that doesn't seem to bother anymore. She really? seemed to. That's good. I'm. You know, oh, that's great! I it's, I, it's nice to know that she could enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you never like to read something bad. I, yeah. well, we talked about the old Rockefeller rule: don't don't read today's papers, read today's papers tomorrow, then you don't have to worry about it. So it helps if you have a hundred million dollars. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, if you didn't have to read, somebody read them for you. <laughs> yeah. But Tony Gonzari. Yeah. Nineteen eighty. Um, Is it fair to say you and George Bush, you certainly were very different. You certainly came out of very different backgrounds. Did, did you rub each other a little in the wrong way? I mean, at that point, was it? Uh, in the 80s? Yeah, I mean, particularly, say, in, the, in 79, 80, when you were both interested in running. I mean, you'd have... No, I think even a little earlier, well, you know, when I... When went on this journey to New York, just asking me wanted to be chairman when it was already the deal had already been made. I mean, I was just wasting my time. Nixon or somebody said, "Well, you ought to go up and talk to Bush." Of course, Bush wanted to be number one somewhere, and they, they were going to make him number two at defense or number three, and so they finally offered him the chairmanship. Uh, and I remember going up to the UN to see if he was interested. I mean, the deal was already made. I mean, I'm just, I'm just a tool, I guess. But uh, I remember him being introducing him when he his first meeting. I said, "Here they come, dragging." The new chairman in. <laughs> in other words, he wasn't very anxious. It's not the job he wanted. Yeah. But, but we got along pretty well then. And it was really after the 88 election, I think, that a lot of distrust. You know, but, uh, Did you remember the, uh, the night in Nashua, the debate? With uh, Reagan and Bush, and oh, that was fun. <laughs> All of us had fun. 
because we probably weren't contenders, but we we got to be in on it. And we were all we were all sort of for Reagan, you know. So we didn't get to participate, and Reagan, I paid for this, what was it, I paid for this, Mike? That was a great moment in politics, I mean, that, that really changed. And then I remember what I said, it was a Brokaw, stop lying about my record. Right. That was, that just come out? Yeah. I didn't know Bush was around, but but he was lying about my records. So. <laughs> Calling me Senator, what was the Senator Straddle? Raising taxes and anyway, that that's the year I should have been the nominee. Ninety six was not not the right year. But uh, it's interesting you say that because, not to dredge it up, but I mean, the memo that I wrote you in 95 saying that I thought you were a better candidate in 88 because I thought you were much truer to who you were yeah. and that that was your great strength, you know? Yeah. And um, it felt like 96, it felt like you were. Well, it felt like just my turn. Well, it's Dole's turn. Everybody else, you know, go up the ladder. But, uh, you know, I think in 96, if I look back on it, I think supporting Clinton's troop movement to the Balkans really hurt me in the primaries, particularly in New Hampshire. And then... Forbes spent all the money beating me up, and uh, what the right winger uh, Pat Buchanan, and then Newt Gingrich. Every ad they ran was me and Newt. <laughs> so, not that Newt intended it that way, but I, I think probably probably wouldn't have won anyway. But I think and, and pro was a little factor, not much. What was Forbes' agenda? Rose? No, no, Forbes. I mean, he, he did he think he could win the nomination yep. himself? He really did. And he had the money, and he had a you know he had an idea of flat tax, which appealed to a lot of people. Uh, just pay one rate. Uh, and there's no question about it. Anybody who's been in the Senate as president. Hillary Clinton will find out, the general, you vote on an appropriation bill with 850 things in it. And there's one thing in there that's sensitive, and somebody picks that out and said he voted against or he voted for that. And it makes it harder, I think, for, well, that's why we don't elect Benny Sanders as president. On Harding and Kennedy. Yeah. And Kennedy wasn't a very good senator. I mean, he no. wanted to get out of the Senate as soon as he was. And that, that, that was my take on Edwards. He never wanted to be in the Senate. It was a way station 
on the way to the White House. He never really focused much on North Carolina. Are there people like that who you can just, uh, who are sort of so driven by ambition that you can you just you pick, can them see them you can. pick them out. You pick them out. Pick them out. Yeah. Well, you know the old line: you go in the cloakroom and yell, "Mr. President," they all turn around. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Yep. Do you think? Do you think of a senator? Maybe from each party. Think of a senator who, who would have been a very good president. Who uh, maybe? I thought Lloyd Benson would have been a good president. He'd been in business. He was sort of a centrist Democrat. He was a bright guy. Uh, but Texas didn't appeal to New Hampshire people and. The early states, he never really got off the ground. Uh, I think we got, you know, I like Chris Dodd and Joe Biden. Biden's problem is he talks too much. Mm. And Chris probably doesn't have any money. But as far as having experience, I mean, these guys got a lot more than Hillary, but they don't have the money or the name or so. 1980. We'll, we'll we'll get this out of the way, and then next time we'll talk about the Reagan and finance. You were on the finance committee by then. I mean, in the late 70s. Yep. Uh, but you weren't you weren't the ranking member. Uh, I think the ranking member. Someone who retired. Maybe, Bennett or? from Utah retired. I think. Okay. I'd have to double check that. Yeah, I was on the committee. I'd worked my way up. And Russell Law and I were great buddies. He was a good guy. We never had any partisan, you know, he didn't really care much for all the... But he, was, he was a, a good Democrat, Democrat, but he, he I mean, didn't... There aren't any of those left, are there? I mean, that kind of conservative Democrat... I mean, they're gone. Yeah. What was it about finance that uh, that appealed to you? Well, we had trade, health care. I mean, just had so many different subjects uh, that I thought even from Kansas, you talk about trade, farmers, Boeing, uh, health care, you know, hospitals, all those stuff. Uh, with so much jurisdiction, plus all the tax code, state tax, income tax, all the different taxes, uh, hospice care, which I worked on with Ribikoff. I don't know, just a great committee. And uh, I never, of course, dreamed I'd be chairman of the committee. Neither did Russell Long. But <laughs> that's the last thing he thought of. But uh, in fact, I, you know, the story when I, the first vote we had after I became chairman, when they said, "Mr. Chairman," he voted. He'd forgotten. He'd forgotten I'd taken over. But he said, "I not only vote for my chairman or something like that. I vote with my chairman." But he had a good comeback. <laughs> but uh, it, it, I'd say, of all the committees. You know, as far as economics, it, it's a big committee. 
appropriations are very important, uh, but it's gotten to be so, it's almost how much can I get in appropriations, which never was quite the same. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, you know, Moynihan had teaching hospitals. He'd try to take care of those things, things like that. But it wasn't some earmark. It was, he thought it was the right thing to do. And he'd, uh, others of us had the same kind of thing. So. What, what does it take? What's the mark of a successful committee chairman? Patience, which I'm still working on. And listening to somebody, and but I think the big thing is keep being fair on the committee. You're not giving too much time to Republican side, or if you're Democrat, the Democratic side. You're not trying to, and you know, some of these poor witnesses, some members love to harangue. These big CEOs and others come up there, which I never thought was very good sport. I don't know. Uh, you wonder sometimes how these guys got to be CEOs. But <laughs> they may wonder how some of you got to be senators. You know, I'm sure they all wonder that. All the money they make. Well, they go to training now. You know, they before they testify, most of them have been. But I, I think it's. Uh, it's like anything else. It's any kind of business. It's trying to make friends and trying to get along and trying to make certain if the last guy on the committee has got a problem that you try to fix it. Or if you can't fix it, you don't try to embarrass him in a public hearing. You know, if you offer some amendment, you try to make it say this can't can't do this, it costs too much, we don't have an offset, all this stuff. But uh, I mean, I, I wasn't, I knew, probably knew less about taxation than Benson or Packwood, who were chairman. Moynihan and I probably did, knew about the same. Of course, he was an intellectual. Let's put him in a separate tier anyway. But I was scared to death when the first day I was <laughs> became chairman of the committee. God, what am I doing? What am I doing here? You know, but it's it's not all. That's what you have good staff for, like Rod DeArmond or Bob Lighthizer or Sheila Burke. And how did you recruit that staff? How did you find people like that? I actually found Lighthouser through Elizabeth. She knew somebody who knew of him, a friend of hers in Kansas City. And Sheila, I'm not sure how she came to me. That was the best move I made because she then once she got on board and she had started saying, well, you ought to look at this person or this person or this person. But now she came from a different 
area of the political spectrum. Oh yeah, they accused her of voting for McGovern and all this stuff. I said, well, I don't, I wasn't in this, I wasn't in the booth with her. I don't know how she voted. <laughs> so, <laughs> but even in '96, people, oh, you, you can't trust this guy. He hired this woman who voted for McGovern. <laughs> You know, some of these people you just can't please. And that she might have been pro-choice. I said, well, I, I've never heard her say it. I, I don't ask all my employees what all their views are. So, but she did a good job. And first, she was the first female chief of staff for a majority leader. Joanne Coe was the first woman secretary of the Senate. Ernie Garcia was the first Latino sergeant in arms. So, you know, we were reaching out to people. And what, what do you do, I assume, and I'm not interested in names, but over the years there must have been people who disappointed you. I mean, staff who, for whatever reason, I mean, is it have you ever fired someone? Well, oh, that was it. Reagan never could fire anybody. <laughs> I think I, I had the same problem. <laughs> a couple of them I should have fired, but I always got somebody else to do it. Stanley, somebody who wrote a book from right. San Francisco, yeah. claimed to be my confidant. He he drove me around in a car, you know, and and he did a little work on the Senate committee, but. What's called Senator for Sale. He didn't sell. He didn't sell many. I might, might add, but I don't know what I ever did to him. I mean, I, as far as I know, I didn't uh, do anything to him. But uh, you know, some people see an opportunity. If the guy's running for president, maybe I can sell a few books. I see Kathleen Willie's got one coming out on Clinton next this November. So you know, people are. What's it called? Free enterprise? <laughs> I guess. But I not very many. I mean, uh, you know, I had good people like Terry, Tim Chuck, people, you know, people that, you know, you knew them all, and they're... Uh, I mean, are there basic qualities that you're looking for? I mean, obviously... Sheila Barra was not head of the FDI, FDIC, Kansas... From Kansas, and uh, yeah, that's somebody that I could talk. And I didn't worry about if they were smarter than me. That was a good thing. Like Lighteiser and DeArmond on taxes. I mean, they understood that stuff. I had to call Rod the other day, trying to think of what we did in '83. I couldn't remember what happened. He's, he's, he still knows it. And he said, "You know, said I'm 59 now. I'm getting up there." But uh, I think, you know, there are a few staff people kind of let you down sometimes. But one thing about the Senate is it's not 24-7, but it's long hours. You get quite a few little breaks, but particularly the staff, if you're in the leadership, your staff doesn't get much, whether you're George Mitchell or Bob Dole. But long before you were a leader, you were working Saturdays. I was what? You you were working Saturdays long yeah. before you were in the leadership. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, I, that's when I made a lot of phone calls on Saturday back home. I always called my mother on Saturday. But uh, we didn't make everybody work. I think we rotated. <laughs> but I always told them they get off Sunday. <laughs> yeah. One last thing I'll ask you. I didn't get out of sequence, but then we'll – I just always wanted to ask you this because I've never – my theory about Nixon is that um, he, he really never did anything that wasn't calculated. I mean, he, and I don't mean that the way it sounds, but he was, you know, that's the way he was. And I also thought it was fascinating that he had you as a eulogist for both Mrs. Nixon and himself. And my theory is Nixon knew that, or at least he figured, there was no way you could get through a eulogy without well, not the way you wrote it. Without no, 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 without showing without showing your emotion. Yeah, and he thought. Remember, who were his guys for '96? You and Pete Wilson, and yeah. both of you were eulogists at both funerals. That's, yeah, I thought of that. And I think Nixon knew the best thing that could happen to you as a public figure, political candidate. Would be to show your emotions, because it would show us. Well, that's that, that people... I'm so American line. That's what well, got me, you know. But, but uh, yeah, I didn't know. But I, I did occur to me that both Pete and I, and you know, he was pretty candid with me. You know, you've you've read the long ready letter he wrote to me about what what happened in '96. Not to worry about my age. My voice was still strong and. And but he said one thing at the end: if the economy is good, you're not going to beat Clinton. <laughs> While the economy was good, <laughs> so I mean, he he loved to give advice, whether it was to George Allen or whoever. But and he he pretty smart guy. I remember when he first came, we we had this little rehabilitation program, and he didn't suggest that I did. And we brought him to the Senate, and. He met with a group of us and took us on a tour around the world without a note. You know, there wasn't a—you could hear a pin drop in the room. And these were Democrats and Republicans. And later, Senator Byrd, who he mentioned he was going to put on the Supreme Court one time, Byrd never forgot it, got a whole bunch of these Nixon-hating Democrats together, and they came out with their mouths open. They couldn't believe this guy. I mean, people like Tom Harkin and others had no use for Nixon. But they had to admit, you know, the guy's got something up here. But it's, there was a flaw there. He wasn't comfortable with himself. He was an insecurity. What was it? You, you probably know. Well, you know, Kissinger famously said once that Something must have happened. Someone hurt him as a child, and 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 taught him not to trust people. That the, you know, some trauma, you know, made it impossible for him to trust. And I don't know. That's that's one theory. It's um, yeah. I keep expecting my name to pop up on some White House tape one of these days when I'm down there having a meeting with him. It's one thing about Nixon. I couldn't get a meeting through Haldeman or Carlyle, whatever those guys' names were. 
But if I'd see Nixon and say, you know, I'd really like to talk to you, the next day I'd get a call or the next day. Then he'd always give you a little tie clip or something. Give this to your girlfriend or something like that. You know, he's, uh, he, he really didn't have a lot of small talk, did he? I mean, he wasn't, no. he wasn't uh, comfortable. No. But uh, In some ways, I mean, he didn't have the, temper, the personality for the job that he was in. I don't know whether he ever had a, I guess, with his friend, uh, his Cuban friend. Rebozo. Bibi, who was a great guy, and I knew Bibi pretty well. Uh, I guess that's the only time I ever relaxed with Bibi. Uh, I mean, even having him waiting in the ocean there, one shot with a suit and tie on, you know. Of course, most people think we're all born with suit and tie anyway in, this, in Washington. So, oh, you don't have a tie on today? I said, no. So, but I think the most underrated one back there is Ford on my wall. Yeah. Why do you think he's most underrated? I think because he he's the right kind of a guy, you know, just a, you like to have as a neighbor, you know, just. Oh, Jerry, Jerry Ford, oh, he's my neighbor. And he never, he could be tough, don't misunderstand me. Well, again, you know. And he probably wasn't perfect, but none of us are or were. But he knew the Congress. He knew every weapon we ever had because he was ranking on defense appropriations. He knew every Democrat and every Republican by their first name. He had this great relationship. He could get up and pound at the table, you know, have the Jerry and whatever, Ev show, whatever. But Carl Albert loved him and Tip loved him. And if he'd just given him, just had a chance for four years, I think. Uh, You know, made a big difference. Yeah, I've often thought if he'd had, the, if he'd won in '76, it'd be like Truman. It'd be a Ford cult. I mean, that same kind of plain-spoken Midwestern candor, authenticity. Yeah, yeah. You know, it sort of fit the Eisenhower Truman mold of somebody leaving the White House. What Eisenhower was in the bottom third. Truman had 24% approval rating, and now when the historians, where are they, seven or eight or nine, yeah. both of them? Yeah. So history judges, I mean, they'll judge whether Bush was wrong on preemption or whether Clinton was wrong on whatever. Uh, I don't know who, who these historians are that do all that stuff. <laughs> You're probably one of them. <laughs>